Bart. Um, Hebrews is a complex book. It requires a good knowledge of the Old Testament to really understand it. Otherwise, it's easy to get lost. However, it's well worth the effort to work your way through it. It's, it is a profound book, and it has lots of lovely truth packed into it. I think of the book of Hebrews like a fifth gospel, only it tells the story of Jesus differently than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It tells the meaning of Jesus and the meaning of his, his ministry. From the first three books in the introduction, we know the message of Hebrews because it sticks with that message there in the first three verses, that Jesus is God's final word to humankind, that in Jesus we learn everything we need to know about God, that God allows himself to be seen in Jesus. It's like Paul tells the, the Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In fact, um, Jesus, we discover right away, is superior to angels. He is superior to everything in the Old Testament, to Moses, to Joshua, uh, to the priest of the tribe of Levi. The word better appears something like 24 times in the New Testament. More than half those times is in the book of Hebrews. Better, better, better. Jesus is better than Moses. He brings us a better hope. He creates a better covenant with better promises. He offered better sacrifices. He gives us a better possession. And through him we have a better resurrection. And even today we read in verse 24 that his blood speaks better than Abel's blood. And if you don't know the reference there, Cain and Abel were the, the sons of Adam and Eve, and Cain killed his brother Abel, and God interrogated Cain one day. Uh, he said, where's your brother? He said, how should I know? I'm not his babysitter. And God said, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground cries for justice, cries for attention. So um, Abel, though he's dead, he still spoke through his blood. And Jesus' blood speaks of better things than his. Right to the very end of Hebrews, it's all about Jesus, all the way through uh, to the doxology with which the writer closes in 1320. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It might look, as you read through Hebrews, 
like the writer is comparing Judaism to Christianity. And he's saying Christianity is better. But that's not really what's happening here. He is showing us how Jesus is the goal and the fulfillment of uh, Judaism. He is the perfection of Judaism. Judaism was the necessary foundation and preparation for the coming of Christ. And in Judaism, there is this spiritual potential which is developing that is actualized in the person of Jesus. So all that God had in mind that he was doing through the Old Testament came to fruition when Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. In verse 18, the writer of Hebrews, and I say the writer because we don't know who wrote Hebrews for sure. Some think Paul, uh, others Luke. There's all kinds of conjecture. Someone has even suggested that uh, a woman wrote the book of Hebrews, which I think is an interesting and, and lovely idea. But um, in verse 18, we're told that God led, has led us somewhere, but not uh, where he led Israel that he's led us even as he led them, but it's, it's different. We haven't come to the same destination. In fact, we're not even in the, in the same place, the same category of places. The writer doesn't specify where God had brought them. I know it says mountain in uh, the New American Standard, but if you notice, that's in italics, which means that they're supplying a word that's not in the best text. Uh, but we know where God brought them because we spent more than half the year in the book of Exodus. And we know all about Mount Sinai and the thunder and the lightning and the, the mention of Moses. We can put it all together. We're talking about where God gave Israel the law, where he brought them into covenant with himself. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, that's not where God has taken us. He's not taken us back to Mount Sinai. Um, what he says, quite literally, is that we have not come to something that can be touched. What does that mean? That God has led us to something that's intangible. In Galatians, Paul commented on Mount Sinai and Jerusalem, and he contrasted them. Uh, both he treated as actual physical places, but he also treated them allegorically. He uses that particular word. That Mount Sinai represents the slavery of the law, and Jerusalem represents the freedom of grace. Our writer does something different here. Here the contrast is between a physical place and a spiritual reality. God led them to Mount Sinai. He's led us to a spiritual reality, which he calls the heavenly Jerusalem. And he's done the same thing in the previous chapters. For example, um, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, he talks about the temple. And he says the temple was made after a pattern. Remember, God told Moses, make sure you follow the, the blueprints carefully. And he says, that pattern is a pattern of God's dwelling place in heaven. There's this correspondence. Uh, only 
One is physical, the other is spiritual. The physical one is the copy. And he refers to it as, as copy, as, um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting a whole lot this morning. He, he refers to it as copy and, and other similar words. It's not, it's not the real deal, it's a replica of the real deal. When I was a kid, uh, we used to make, we put together you know, plastic model cars. And I, I made some interesting ones because I didn't follow the instructions. So uh, though I was working on a retro car, an old Model A, it came out a car of the future uh, with lots of glue, uh, which we didn't know was harmful to breathe at the time. Uh, so it was lots of glue, lots of fun. Our experience, the writer is telling us, our experience is not one of spiritual or supernatural explosions in our world. It's not the water of the Red Sea unfolding and creating a path. It's not fire from heaven. It's not commandment engraved on stone slabs. That God takes us somewhere else, that he gives us something else. Then in verse 22, he tells us where we have come. We have come to Mount Zion. Zion in the poets and prophets of Israel became a symbol, a symbol of the fulfillment of God's covenant. God even speaks to to Zion. He says uh, uh, that, that those in Zion are my people. And that's the covenant. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And Zion represents this this city now, this society, where everyone lives in God's love and, uh, and follows the impulses of God's love. They, there's all, always kindness and forgiveness and generosity and grace and grace and grace. I want to move there. I'm sorry. You know, um, <laughs> that, that just sounds so, so good to me today. Our Zion... Is, is not on, at Jerusalem or Mount Moriah or the city of David. Uh, our Zion is heaven, and that's our destination. That's what we have come to. And it's not heaven off in the future only, but it's, it's a little bit of heaven every day. We don't have the full experience yet. I can never lie to you and, and say, this is heaven. You know, this is part heaven and part hell, honestly. And if you haven't experienced the hellish part, then I'm amazed, and God bless you, may you never. But um, this life is, is somewhat a little, of, or sometimes a lot of one or the other. We don't have the full experience yet, but once in a while we are given a taste. And earlier in Hebrews, in chapter 6, the writer describes our experience as being enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. We've even had a taste of our future. I I hope you can say, well, yeah, there is that time when I was talking to a friend and suddenly... 
It was like light was glowing around us. I, I came to an understanding or I experienced a depth of love. We get to taste heaven. Someday we'll have the full meal. What we have come to is spirit. It's not material. It's not tangible. It's not something that can be touched. It's spirit. And I want to I share with you my concept of what spirit means. And I should issue a disclaimer um, um, that I can't prove this, and I don't know enough about anything to say it's exactly like this, but my concept of spirit is that spirit is not a separate non-physical reality. It's not a separate non-physical reality. That spirit includes physical reality, only it has more dimensions. And that's why we can't see it. That's why we never bump into spirit, because we are limited to our four space-time dimensions. And that's why spirit seems unreal to us, like fairy tale. If you've ever read the book Flat World, then you're way ahead of everyone else in this room right now. God created us deficient in this regard. That we can only connect with the four-dimensional physical universe. He limited our sense perception to this box. And he hides from us a more complete reality a more complete reality. And for now, the only way to know that reality is by faith. The writer of Hebrews spent the whole previous chapter, chapter 11, talking about faith. And you can see that faith compels people to do things. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than that of his brother Cain. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Moses left Egypt. By faith, all these people did all these things. But the chapter begins, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Even though God has built in this deficiency we can train our brains to discern more than our five senses can tell us. Though our five senses can be helpful in this regard also and sometimes need to be trusted, our brains can be trained to discern more. In uh, chapter 5 of Hebrews, the writer says, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's something we can't naturally do, but through training. And, and how does he say that we, 
we're able to come to this discernment. He says, by practice. Maturity is the result of lots of practice so that you become more skilled, more aware, more enlightened. This past week, I thought I was relapsing into depression. My heart and mind slipped back into a very dark place, and I could not work my way out of it, not even with mindful meditation, which for the last 10 or 12 years has been really helpful to pull me out of depression. I don't think of myself as a depressive anymore after 40 years of being so. But this last week, after every time I sit, I, pardon me, I sat in contemplative prayer with God, at the end I felt like I had to apologize to him that I cannot maintain my attention or my focus. I've told you about volunteering some of my time at a local rehab center the friend who invited me, he's, he's very sly about this. And it's just because he, he knows me. He said, um, hey, Chuck, um, this rehab center needs someone to lead two Christian groups. Which, by the way, I have to tell you, leading a Christian group in recovery is so different. And there's so much more hope uh, of not relapse. There, it's just a really different situation than before I've worked with like non-Christians and atheists. And it, it's a, just a different situation. Anyway, um, he said they need someone to volunteer a, a couple hours, you know, four hours every week. And uh, I said, oh, that's nice. And, <laughs> and he said, well, you know, they're thinking, you know, maybe, you know, you'd be interested. And I said, Tony, I'm not. You know, just so you know, I'm not. Um, I'm I'm kind of burned out on that type of work, and I'm not interested. But I'll talk to the owner. Perhaps I can think of someone who'd be a perfect fit. And he said, "That's great. That's great." So I, I met with the owner and and, and Tony and talked uh, with them. And afterwards, uh, I said to Tony, "I've got an idea. Um, I'm going to." I'm going to come here on, on Tuesday night and work with both groups uh, if, you're, if you'll be there too. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm there. And I said, and I just want to meet the people and get a feel for what's going on. Well, that was like more than two months ago, and I've been there almost, well, just, I've just missed one Tuesday night since then. Um, but I am going to stop. I'm not going to do this. But he knew. He knew that I, if I met these people and heard their stories and interacted with them, I'd want to be there for them. You want to see people succeed in recovery. You, you want to give them whatever it is you have to give them. So, so I think that he knew that. And uh, every time since then that we've talked about it, he's kind of smirked um, when we talk about it because he knows he hooked me. But I am going to stop. I would not have gone there if not for Tony. 
I've spent time with him over the last five years um, with his wife, with his youngest son, uh, been involved in some of their adventures and walked with them through it. And uh, he's been with me in, in these groups. He's only missed uh, one or two of them. And his participation is necessary because he knows addiction and alcoholism from the inside. And without that, there are sometimes I say things that are so weak and so unhelpful, but he always corrects or informs better because he knows it that way. He's very gifted. Monday night, this last Monday night, I received a call around 9.30 uh, Labor Day. I had been with Barbara and our, some of our kids and grandkids at our house um, enjoying uh, you know, barbecue and being together. And uh, Tony had been at the rehab center with the staff uh, celebration there, and then went from there with his wife and one of his sons to Salt Creek. And uh, he and his son were in the water body surfing when Tony went down under a wave and did not come back up. And they found his body um, sometime later. It, it took them a while to, uh, to locate it. When I heard those words, I stopped breathing. I could not think. I could not say a word. I had no words. In fact, I, I told Bobby, the, the guy who called me, I said, I can't, I can't say anything. No wisdom, no words of comfort, no biblical quotation. All of it left me. I was in a void. Tony, younger than I, probably by 10 years, and in excellent shape. And I could not fathom that he was that suddenly gone. On Tuesday, I went to visit his wife. And that didn't help. I was there, but I was useless. I couldn't speak there. I could not think of saying anything worthwhile. You know, the only helpful thing I said was I recommended a mortuary. And when some other people came by later, um, who Rayanne really trust, uh, she was telling them the same story she had told me, and they recommended the same mortuary. So I think we did well for her in that regard which may not sound like much, but when you're lost and confused, just to get a line like that to hang on to, you feel like, okay, something's being resolved anyway. Tony, this, this person that I know, is no less real because I cannot see him or touch him. He is as solid as Zion. Yeah. 
as solid as Jesus. He is more real. He has more dimensions than I have. And he's not tasting heaven. He's feasting heaven. I am less real than Tony. Tragedy has a way of sweeping away everything superficial, sentimental, contrived. But it also magnifies feelings, intensifies sensitivity to things and to others, and it reveals the meaningfulness of every moment because each moment is so uncertain without guarantee, so unreliable. I find that tragedy makes me less patient with nonsense. When someone says something lame or judgmental, I want to look at them and say, just shut up. But I don't have the energy to do that. So I look patient. We have come to Jesus. We have come to something not tangible, but multidimensional. Andrew Murray says, we have not come to something tangible. This is just the word every Christian needs who is in danger of being discouraged and fainting in the race. Do you ever get discouraged? Do you ever faint in the race? You're not at the goal line yet. A pastor from Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa sent me a text on Friday and says, Andrew so-and-so is trying to get in touch with you. He said he was part of your ministry way back when, and he's deathly ill and would like to talk to you. I was with the grandkids on Friday and didn't have time, and in the evening did not have it in me to call, but I called yesterday. And Andrew's a, a great guy. He was very, very involved in the ministry. I haven't seen him in more than 25 years. Um, He's exceptionally talented, and he's telling me that he's suffered all kinds of losses, that he's had no place to live, that he was recently diagnosed with congestive heart failure, and he, he he said to me that he hasn't abandoned the faith, but it's been shaken. And that he regrets that. He regrets that, you know, when you're you're physically strong and, and, and mentally there, it's not that difficult. But when you're knocked down and you have health issues, it can get to the point sometimes where you're asking questions you would not normally ask. You get like Job. You say some angry things about God or to God. And, and he's been there. And he says, um, 
that sometimes he asks God, why do you put up with me? And God answers him, Andrew, I paid a great price for you. Wednesday night in our meeting at Barry and Laura's house, two people spoke of Jesus calling us close to him. And as, as they said that, each one of them, I had a feeling of it. I had a feeling of, of Jesus saying, come close. More than anything, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know Jesus for yourself. I want him to be in your life. I want him to be your trust and hope. I want him to be your comforter, your encourager, your savior, your Lord. I want you to know him. I want you to know his love for you. I want you to know his touch in your life. Is that even possible? When you're an infant, before you could walk, before you had words, before you could form a concept of anything, you knew your mother. You didn't know the word mother. You didn't know her name. You didn't know what she was. But you knew the warmth of her body her embrace. You knew the sound of her cooing voice. You were held in her arms and you knew her. This is how we come to know Jesus. We don't have to know all about him. We don't have to see his face. We don't have to, to um, learn all kinds of theology. Peter said that Though we cannot see him, we love him. And though we do not see him now, we rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Paul told the Corinthians, from now on, we don't know anyone after the flesh. We don't care about their DNA, their pedigree, their accomplishments. We know them spirit to spirit. And he says, even as we once knew Jesus after the flesh, that is, at one time Jesus had a physical body and walked among us. We don't know him that way anymore, but we still know him. And we, we know him by being with him. So I would like for you, in your contemplative prayer, to allow Jesus to draw you close to him. Now, if that's too difficult, then just allow Jesus to approach you and allow yourself to feel him. How, however that happens in your spirit, in your feelings, in your body, in your mind, and through his touch, through his presence, come to know him. And if you have an experience of Jesus, 
so that you know him in such a way you cannot explain it, then you're there. Because you've come to know him the same way you knew your mother, and he is infinitely more. Would you stand with me, please? You know, I think I'll give you the benediction that the writer of Hebrews gave. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.